have this this big thing that I've learned and this quote kind of I always say is that you got to be lucky but luck is the intersection between opportunity and preparation we're surrounded by all this opportunity but unless we're prepared to execute on it and really take advantage of these opportunities it's just gonna pass you by absolutely it's bad right. luck yeah but when you're lucky it's when you're actually in the right place at the right time but not just that you put yourself in that place you put yourself in this period of time and you prepared yourself to actually execute on the opportunity that comes to you mm. welcome to the founder's couch this is a show about Stanford student founders and their intrepid journeys of starting their own thing. I'm your host, Katherine Jang. I hope all of y'all's weeks have been absolutely wonderful because I've got an incredible show planned for you. Today, we'll be talking to Nathan Kong. Nathan and I both hail from Dallas, Texas. He's a student here at Stanford who has an incredible track record, so bear with me for this slightly longer intro. He founded Beyond One, an augmented reality startup that created a multi-user mobile AR system and conducted research on several consumer AR products. All of this was funded by investors like Sequoia, General Catalyst, and Amino Capital. The startup was founded in Nathan's freshman year, and to pursue this full-time, he ended up dropping out of school for a full year. Now, he's back taking classes, but is also running an AR-VR consulting firm on the side. And last week, he had me over for his fourth dinner view, a series he's starting where he invites guests for a home-cooked meal off campus and holds discussions on a variety of philosophical topics. Now, I know that was a lot, but I couldn't be more excited to dive into all of this. So let's get Nathan on the couch. Thanks so much, Nathan, for uh, joining me on the couch today. Yeah, no problem. How are you doing? Great. How's life? Uh, going well so far. Mm -hmm. um, still recovering from this weekend with tree hacks and all, but doing Ooh, well. Tell me about tree hacks. How was that? Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Um, I haven't competed in hackathons since high school. I've been sponsoring and mentoring for the past three years, so I just wanted to go back out and try hacking, like just get back into it. Which topic did you do it under? Like healthcare or? So we, I actually applied to the uh, Disney. Prize. Oh, so I, I was see. doing okay. like Disney theme parks and use cases and navigation for their park. Mm -hmm. And I did it with an augmented reality project. Big okay. surprise. Right. <laughs> so tell me, how did you get into AR? Because I know, like, I want to jump into like Beyond One, um, Diver EDU, and Curio Pets later, but how did you get involved in AR in the first place? Sure. So I actually haven't been working with augmented reality for that long. I actually started in the virtual reality space. Okay. Uh, I've been working in VR for about four years now, uh, getting close to five. Um, I started with virtual reality back in high school at my first hackathon. Uh, I was introduced to the Oculus Rift and I had the opportunity to play some games on and test some things out with one of my uh, group of friends that I had. And we actually built a virtual reality education hack and that hack eventually uh, led to becoming into what became DiveryDU. Got it. So you knew you were interested in VR why specifically education? Sure. So I've been a tutor um, for about eight years now. Um, ever since middle school, I've liked to help my fellow classmates. Mm -hmm. um, and I was an assistant coach on our you know, competitive math team in middle school, as well as in high school. Um, and I've had a really strong passion for teaching. But also, um, my background is I went to an under developed under-resourced middle school growing mm. up mm -hmm. uh, thankfully due to my parents i was able to move to mm -hmm. a more financially stable a uh, very opportunistic high school in dallas yeah and i know that place <laughs> yeah uh exactly and but because of the shift in the education that i had i was exposed to a lot more it's a lot more rigorous very competitive it was very difficult and i had a hard time adjusting initially mm. but i grew a lot from the process um i learned a lot and because of the shift, I realized that I wanted to be able to give back to those under-resourced, underdeveloped schools. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of why I wanted to get into education space and using virtual reality, specifically Google Cardboards, which is what we pivoted to from the Oculus, right. uh, was a really interesting way for us to tackle that problem. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Like I had no idea that like it was like driven to sort of give back to your experience that you had previously. Exactly. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, so how did you meet your co-founder's name is Xiao Han, right? Xiao Han? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Xiao Han. Xiao. Yeah. How did you meet him? Sure. So, uh, again, we've been best friends since high school. So when I moved from my first school district to high school, I had a really difficult time because 
I, I was like the number one student in our uh, middle school, but it was very easy in mm-hmm. that school district, and the education level wasn't as rigorous. But high school was such a big shift. Um, I went to Highland Park High School, and a lot of smart, really talented people there. Oh, yeah. So I ended up you know, when I when I initially moved, I was in the bottom like seven percent of my class, and that was a really hard um, blow for me in terms of my self esteem mm-hmm. and what I thought of myself. And so. I just really wanted to catch up, and Shahan was one of the peers. Um, I had a really group of really smart friends who I looked up to, and I wanted to, you know, get on their level. Right. <laughs> um, so Shahan was one of them, but Shahan specifically was a, a special friend of mine because he actually helped me uh, learn a lot. Um, even in freshman year, he would be teaching me science outside of class uh, for our science com- competitions that we would go to, like Science UIL. Uh-huh. So he would. You know, help me after school. We would, you know, go over like subatomic physics or particle physics. Oh wow! Um, just a lot of stuff, and we worked on a lot of projects together throughout high school. And so we've been really close growing up. Uh, and again, during junior year, that's when we decided to try out at a hackathon. And based on that project, we were able to um, move forward with a internship actually was offered to us at the hackathon because a group was really interested by a product mm-hmm. so this education innovations firm called iCode reached out to us and offered us an internship oh wow um n- not just so to cool. us there were two other people who we were working with right. on a team um so the four of us did this internship we were building a vr education project for their team mm-hmm. but by the end of the summer they said that you know, we just want to take this product, this prototype you've built, we'll give you like a small lump sum, that's it. But we wanted to continue working on it. We really loved the idea, the passion. Mm -hmm. Continued working on it. And we had, that's the time period when we pivoted from working on the Oculus Rift to the Google Cardboard. Mm -hmm. That was after, you know, Shahan and I discussed what was important to us, what, what field do we want to go into? How do we want to apply this educational uh, tool? So why the shift between those two? Mm -hmm. So the big problem with education is that especially education technology is that there's a lack of funding in that space and mm-hmm. all the funding goes to like whiteboards, markers, projectors, those are all included in technology, not just software. Right. And the Oculus Rift at the time was super expensive. It was like six, seven hundred dollars. It required a really powerful computer that would cost like upwards of a thousand dollars to run it. Mm-hmm. And that's just simply not affordable for schools. Right. Even really rich private schools can't afford or they could afford, but it'd be very expensive to invest into thirty devices of VR plus these intense computers. So mm-hmm. We thought, where does a form factor that's easier for students to use, but also is more accessible and affordable to schools? And that's when we came across the Google Cardboard. Mm. So if you're not too familiar, the Google Cardboard is just this cardboard box, costs 5 to $10, mm-hmm. and all you need to do to run VR is put your smartphone in it. So smartphones are actually very widely spread, um, highly democratized, even amongst students in under-resourced schools. Um, we did a study and we, or we looked up some study, did a research to find what is the market for it, what are the, what's the device penetration, and we found that over 85% of children between the ages of 13 and 17 already owned a smartphone, and that was in 2014. It's many years have wow. passed since then. It's mm-hmm. surely over 90%. So we thought, you know, this is a great way to access our market and to make this in, you know, this immersive and interactive education technology more accessible to these students. Mm. And so these discussions that you were having with Shahan and these realizations through doing all of this research, what time was this? Was this senior year of high school, freshman year of college? We spent like the whole part of senior year just brainstorming, doing research, learning more about virtual reality technologies because we were both very new to it at the time. Right as well as investigating the market. Um, I took more of the business side. I learned about startups, what it's like to fundraise, things like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's where I learned a lot of the rapid prototyping skills and user testing, and that actually helped us a lot as we were starting to build our first prototype. Mm -hmm. Um, By the, I guess, end of senior year, we came up with the name DiverEDU. DiverEDU, by the way, stands for Digital Interactive Virtual Reality Education. Mm. Um, we mainly called it DiverEDU because we wanted the idea of diving into a book, like diving like into that. the concepts. That's good. Yeah. The actual meaning of diver itself is kind of vague, right. <laughs> highly general, <laughs> yeah. but we just thought it was a cool name at the time. It definitely is a cool name. <laughs> Thanks. But yeah, so that was our uh, process through senior year. And then over the summer, instead of doing um, an internship or research, I decided to really do a deeper dive into entrepreneurship, starting a company, what it's mm. like to actually launch a product. Right. And I work, worked on developing the base prototype. Um, so I took lead of that while my co-founder, um, he had an internship or a research, research project going on at the time. So yeah. he was busy working on that. Mm-hmm. But 
as our technical lead, he um, we definitely needed a lot of his help with putting the prototype together. But by the end of the summer, we had something functional. We were able to prototype and test it with over 100 users mm -hmm. uh, within our local networks. So Got it. Fun. Yeah. So you mentioned a couple things I want to actually ask about. So sure. you said senior year... Um, you took more of the business side, and so you did a lot of research into like fundraising, these rapid prototyping. What resources did you tap into to figure all of that out? Sure. I don't even remember how this initially happened, but my first, you know, getting into entrepreneurship that I got was through a podcast. Okay. Uh, Gary Vaynerchuk. Like this one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, it was Gary, uh, Gary V's, Gary Vaynerchuk's podcast. What's the title of the podcast? Um, the Ask... Gary V show, I believe that's okay. what it's called. No, that's definitely what it was called. Um, <laughs> I, I still listen to it occasionally, but I mean, it was very ground level information, just mainly motivational, inspirational. Uh -huh. um, a lot of the bulk of the actual content I got was just from reading articles online, lots of medium posts, lots of people dissecting their startup, you know, growth experiences, failure experiences, mm -hmm. reading Y Combinator papers. Um, so that was really how I got into learning about the space. Um, did at any point of time, did you ever reach out to any high school teachers or upcoming like Stanford professors? So actually, no, um, no one else in my high school was really getting into entrepreneurship that, that I knew of, at least. Mm -hmm. And regarding Stanford professors, I didn't find out I was going to Stanford until late senior year. And by then I was still on the track of doing material science. When I joined Stanford University, uh -huh. I initially wanted to go into the material science space with energy and things like that. Right. This virtual reality project was more of like a side passion of mine that's really interesting and mm -hmm. I loved working on it outside of classes. So I thought, you know, why not continue it? I didn't decide to actually have DiveEDU become an actual startup until later in my freshman year of uh, Stanford. Mm. So what caused that shift in kind of mindset of, okay, I'm going to actually pursue this full time? Sure. So at the end of summer, we had this prototype put, put together and I had the opportunity during uh, fall quarter of freshman year to actually showcase that at a education conference. Uh, one of my friends from my dorm, Soto, um, her name was uh, Rachel, Rachel Gardner. Uh, she had the, uh, she was a keynote speaker at this conference called Q, mm. which is this big education conference in Napa they held. And I just happened to come across, I mean, we're in the same dorm, but I just happened to find out she was doing this mm -hmm. um, when I met her like in Lab 64 for some like opening event. Mm -hmm. um, and I was pitching Diver EDU to the rabbit hole team over there. And she heard and she said, oh, that's really cool. I'm doing this. I'm really into education too. I'm going to this conference. And she, we talked a little bit more about it. And then she actually offered me, uh, offered for me to, you know, join her and get a table and present at that because she thought it'd be really cool. Mm. And so I jumped at the opportunity. I skipped a day of class, went <laughs> to Napa with uh, her. And uh, at the conference, I got to actually present to these educators, investors, students, and we got an overwhelmingly positive feedback on the prototype. And then I called my co-founder that night and said, we need to incorporate. Let's, let's go to the next step. Let's actually build this out. Um, and figure out what our business plan is in terms of launching these curricular to schools because the, the teachers were really saying that, you know, we really would love to buy this. It seems like an affordable package, but also seems that it definitely serves an addressable need. Mm, so yeah. that's where we really decided we want to move forward with this beyond just a side project to become a startup. Right. So you guys didn't formally incorporate until you would say late freshman year. Right. It was winter quarter. Uh, that's when I started the process. Um, of incorporating, we were, de we were debating whether to incorporate versus just build out a better prototype and do research on it. Mm -hmm. But because of liability purposes, and we were also thinking long term about how we would expand the VR worlds, mm -hmm. uh, we decided to incorporate. Basically, what occurred was we wanted to figure out how can we actually. There, there were three things we wanted to do. The first one was we wanted to validate our virtual reality educational modules. Are they actually effective? Mm -hmm. The second was we need to figure out what's our pipeline for development. We obviously, just my co-founder and I, we couldn't substantially continue to build out these worlds, but we also didn't right. raise money at the time, so we had to figure out how can we do this without a huge budget. Right. And finally, the last one was what would our distribution channel be? How would we actually get to schools? And we wanted to investigate that more. Right. So I reached out to Sanford's Graduate School of Education. I tried to find, like, I literally just went down the email, like the the post of all the professors emailed everyone who's in the VR space and asked, could I, you know, talk to you about this product I'm working on, Diary to you. Uh, I'd love to see if there's any intersection between your research and 
while we're working on seeing if there's any way we can collaborate. Mm -hmm. And I finally came across um, uh, Professor uh, Dr. Brian Brown at the GSE, and we chatted together. And he was looking into he was using VR also to explore uh, cultural uh, cultural relevancy and um, pedagogy. And so we thought that that was really awesome for us to collaborate so we built a couple of vr worlds for them for them to use for their research mm -hmm. and they gave us some funding as well as they helped you know they taught me a lot about the educational research um in terms of what things you need to do to validate your um, educational program and its uh, efficacy so based on that we were able to actually we built another vr world and launched it in order to do this user study and at the same time, we also started uh, raising money via Kickstarter for a summer program called Diver Boot Camp, which is mm. a really big I remember thing. seeing that as well on your Facebook page. Yeah. yeah. Um, Diver Boot Camp is basically this uh, five-week summer program where we recruited 10 college students, and it was a free summer program. Basically, we taught them how to about what virtual reality is, how to apply to education, taught them how to build these educational virtual reality modules using our um, special, like, basically methodology of putting the uh, pieces together mm. and then also we gave them opportunity to pitch the products I built to like in a panel of investors teachers etc mm. so that was a really big jump um, it was a lot of fun and planning and actually executing the actual boot camp mm -hmm. uh, we had over 200 people apply to the program we were really surprised we had wow. students from all over the US from Stanford to Princeton to UT it was just a it was a really uh, amazing spread of candidates that we were able to access. So how did you get the word out to that, you know, wide of a spread? Yeah. Um, so I basically was able to leverage a lot of the student networks that I've created with the clubs I've been on Stanford, as well as my past friends. Mm -hmm. uh, I met some friends at various summer programs who went to really top level universities such as Yale and Princeton and MIT. Uh, so I was able to recruit there. Um, also, a lot of the student clubs that I've been in, I was able to access a lot of people at Stanford mm -hmm. um, and, you know, spread the application process out amongst all the various email networks. Right. Here. So uh, that was primarily how I did the outreach, but I wasn't expecting to see so many people apply. And that was a lot of fun because I've never had an actual formal application process to a job and never mm -hmm. had to apply right. for any internship or anything like that. So interviewing candidates and vetting them and going through that whole process was it was very weird going through it for the first time but from the other side of the table right I bet walk me through how you guys moved from Diver EDU to Beyond One and how did CurioPets come to be sure so this was a really big rush of events so my this all occurred during my summer after freshman year so as I mentioned we were running the Diver Bootcamp program um, before that we also got into Sequoia Capital Summer Fellowship Program mm-hmm uh, which was an amazing experience. We basically had the opportunity to join a small team of 10 startups um, under the wing of Sequoia. We had some initial funding so we could prototype, you know, build, you know, recruit. Mm -hmm. And we also got the mentorship, of course, of a Sequoia partner. Um, our partner, Stephanie Zan, was really helpful to us, and she was a key reason why we ended up pivoting into the AR space. Mm -hmm. So what occurred was a couple of things. So we actually secured two clients for DiReDU for the educational virtual reality models that we were building. Mm -hmm. um, but one of the clients was very flaky and I had realized in business it's a lot of lot of flaky people. Um, mm -hmm. You, It's very difficult to deal with clients. Mm -hmm. But anyways, that's another thing to get back to. I'll rent more on when I'm talking about my consulting company. Mm -hmm. But regarding uh, the Sequoia program, we were, my co-founder and I were discussing the idea of looking into AR because uh, that was looking at our radar. We were when we were thinking about the ways that we were representing information, and we were looking at the form factor of the cardboard. Based on a lot of the research we got, we got feedback that the cardboard interface was a little clunky, and it got a little tiring to hold it, and the visual quality was not so great. Obviously, it is a cardboard box, mm -hmm. but with AR technologies using platforms like Vuforia, um, those were actually the visual quality was a little bit better there, and it was. Not, it was more engaging with the classroom as opposed to very individualistic in the virtual reality uh, medium. Mm -hmm. So basically, we invested in the AR. We thought about this idea. We pitched it to our partner at Sequoia, and she loved it and said, you need to go with that. You should do that. You should, you know, she knew about her boot camp program. She said that you should try to get that moving into the AR space. But we've already had one of the clients confirmed, mm. and we also wanted the, we, we already planned a training curriculum for the students, and we didn't want to 
they applied for a reason. We didn't want to take back on what we told them that they were going to do initially. So right, right. we moved forward with that. But we were basically juggling building out this AR project on the side, running the boot camp program, and participating in Sequoia Capital's summer fellowship program. And so in the middle of boot camp, um, this investment firm, Amino Capital, which Yes, I know. talked to Sue. Oh, that's great. She was she's great. great. Yeah, she's, she's amazing. Um, I got to meet with Sue and her team quite a bit. And uh, over the course of boot camp, uh, you know, we met almost weekly talking about what we were, what our vision was with Diver E, what we were working on. We talked about the AR products we were working on. Um, and we had her come over to the boot camp. And actually, on her first visit to the boot camp, we sh- she saw what everyone was doing. She saw, like, the logistics of how we put it together, how we planned it. And then uh, had her talk with her afterwards. And then right on the spot, we found out that they were going to, they wanted to invest in our first round. So It's amazing. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was such a fast process, but got to the paperwork we got in this all the information signed over we finished due diligence within like a week and then we raised our first pre-seed round um so we had enough capital at that point to take a gap year as uh, my co-founder and i wanted to do right uh, i was telling him in the summer that we really should work on this full time right it's hard to balance with school we can't really focus and so i was just saying like i'm gonna find a way to raise around don't worry we're just it's gonna happen yeah so i was so relieved when i was actually able to go through and then finalize it and uh, he was very relieved as well because he was working really hard on building out the AR product on his own. Again, mm-hmm. he is a technical lead. Right. So there's a lot of pressure on him because we didn't have any other team members at that point in time to help him out. Right. So he had he pulled through a lot with really getting that prototype functional so we could demo it and mm-hmm. that really helped us with securing our round as well. Mm. But anyways, how we got to Curio Pets and Beyond <laughs> One was yeah. the AR project we were working on was Curio Pets. Uh, Curio Pets initially started as a educational game through the lens of a AR pet simulator. So kind of like webkins or Neopets. Right. Um, basically with what Curie Pets, we wanted people to play this game with their pet and learn more about the world, but also play it, have this way, like it was like an interface between teachers and students. So like teachers could have students play these AR games that had relevancy to the concepts being taught or uh, serve as kind of like a quiz that you could play. Mm-hmm. But through the process of validating and also doing more research in the education market, we found a lot of difficulties with actually getting technology into schools. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing that I didn't mention yet is that we raised $16,000 on Kickstarter to fund this initiative in which we bought, we, we, we found 25 uh, middle schools across the U.S. and we sent each of them 100 VR Google Cardboards and 10 software packages, which by the way were built by this diver boot campers. So it was basically a wow. by students for students program. It was really cool. That's awesome. Um, so we had that initiative going on. And so as we were sending out the modules and recruiting stu- schools, we found a lot of the difficulty was um, a lot has shifted in the education market mm-hmm. during the 2016, 2017 period. And schools were investing a lot less into ed tech, educational technologies. Um, a lot of schools that were investing in the Chromebooks, Google software, things like that. But mm-hmm. because they weren't getting the return on investment, meaning that there wasn't much benefit in terms of the students' performance. School districts were becoming really cautious about what they were investing in, and so the market space closed up a lot. Mm. Um, and so we, because there was such difficulty, we thought, well, what can we do if we want to pursue this with education? And then at the same time, Apple released ARKit, which made augmented reality now democratized to every smartphone. Well, not every smartphone, sorry. <laughs> That's a big issue. Right. To the top smartphones. Mm-hmm. Um, so we thought that, okay, we'll, we'll continue Diver EDU. Um, at this point in time, we had it incorporated, but we didn't really have any plan with it. And the money we raised to Amino Capital was to continue researching what we're working on. They didn't invest in us because of the educational VR. Okay. They invested in our team, and they said we wanted to see what we, were, what we could do. Right, right. Um, and so we thought, okay, let's start researching the AR space. Let's look at how we can approach building an augmented reality app on this mobile platform and see what are good consumer use cases for mobile AR mm-hmm. and what are the design techniques that we should do for this. Because at this time, mobile AR is very novel. There was not a lot of previous work and we wanted to investigate and explore what are some good use cases and good development um, uh, tools that you should use for it. So CurioPets was our first product that we did research on. Um, there were two other ones that we ended up doing over the course of our year at Beyond One, but mm-hmm. you kind of shifted into being this side project again. Or we wanted to convert into a nonprofit. We're mm-hmm. still working on it now, actually. We just want to convert into a nonprofit. It mm-hmm. just kind of became this vague entity. Right. Whereas Beyond One took over all the resources and assets that we got from the fund from our fundraising to do. 
uh, this AR research. Mm. And so that's how we got into Curie Pets, and that's where Beyond One started. Got it, I see. And you said you did a bunch of research with um, potential use cases for how Curio Pets would be used. Did you talk to potential customers, um, and how did you reach out to those people? Sure. So we did a lot of user research and testing through uh, my networks at the university. So talking to a lot of students, getting them play with the game, mm. talking to friends, friends of friends, friends of friends of friends, just right. leveraging a lot of the personal networks created. Um, we realized how difficult it was to do user research outside of the campus, mm -hmm. because when you're a Stanford student, people want to help you. When you're working on a startup, people want to be paid to help you. Right. Um, so it was very expensive initially, and we decided to, you know, rethink our way about doing user research and approaching that. Um, so that, that was a big t hurdle we had to tackle, but we were also very focused on building the product with Curie Pets, and that's something mm -hmm. we learned as we moved to the next product, but we were so focused on getting the set of features we got from one group of user testing instead of doing iterative testing with the product right. that the end product that we developed didn't really... Um, well, it met a, our, mark, our target audience, but our target audience was almost non-existent. And what that means is, um, as I mentioned earlier, ARKit was available only on these high-level AR devices, um, or sorry, smartphones. I'm talking like the iPhone 7, 8, and 10 at the time. But our target audience was young children. We were targeting people who were wanting to play these little cute pet games. This right. is like the age of you know 12 and under. But none of these children had these AR devices. And something we found out when t launching Curie Pets, the beta at least, was that there was a lot of activity over the weekends, but on weekdays, uh, we had a ton of user drops on Monday. And the reason why is because these kids were playing on their parents' device. And whenever the you know, students would play on the weekends and when their parents would go to work, when they would come back, their pets would be sick or dead or, you know, basically because we were mimicking the features of webkins and things like that. But we realized that there wasn't a lot of opportunity for students to interact with these pets and that's we were also told that apple was planning on releasing ar kits lower devices but their timeline got bogged down a lot because ar kit was very buggy when it mm, launched mm -hmm. so because it happened so much later than we initially projected we decided to uh, close up the project and move on to something else that had a bigger addressable market at the time mm. so walk me through like balancing the pros and cons between like you said um you know, getting like a beta version out there and iterating with customers versus doing a bunch of this user research and then kind of having a final prototype? Like, how did you sort of set on one one method? Sure. So, I mean, this is actually, this project was my first big experience with user research. Prior, I haven't had any experiences with it. Um, I did mention at Diver EDU, I reached out to about 100 people, but those are all within my personal networks. Mm. Uh, also, I haven't. I did not reach network exhaustion at that point. Meaning, the people who I've reached out to are now tired of being reached out to, yeah. which is a huge, huge thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, but with Curia Pets, what we initially planned was build an alpha. Um, actually, our timeline got rushed a lot. We ha we were able to act. Um, we were. I was trying to figure out ways to do user research and user testing, and because I didn't have my Stanford network necessarily to rely on, I had to figure out how can I get a bunch of strangers to test out this product without having to pay a ton of money. And so we thought, well, let's market it. Let's try to get organic downloads or at least public publicity so we can get like a good amount, maybe a couple hundred downloads. And so when trying to publicize, I thought, well, how can we get this out there? And since ARKit just launched, I had this idea. I know that I, I thought that Apple would love this idea of being able to have this commercial or advertisement for a game being made using ARKit. So basically what we did was, based on our game, we created an app using Apple's ARKit that allowed us to record and edit and modify these 3D videos. So we could see these 3D objects going around the real world and mm. we recorded this like one and a half, two minute advertisement for it. And we just pushed it on YouTube and LinkedIn and you know all of our social channels. And within a week, we got over 10,000 views. It was really popular. Mm. And we actually got to reach out from someone at Apple. Um, because of disclosure, I can't say what the conversation was specifically, but basically the opera opened us a lot, opened a lot of opportunities for us. Um, we had a lot of press write about us from Huffington Post to TechCrunch even. I, I, I found that article actually. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> that, that was really shocking. And then we actually, I had the opportunity to chat with the TechCrunch team and, 
they were doing a panel on AR at TechCrunch Disrupt the SF, and I had the opportunity to actually, they invited me to go present on a panel of these awesome, amazing figures in the AR space. So we had, we, I was speaking on a panel with the CTO of Niantic, uh, Phil Keselin, uh, the founding team of Esther Reality, which has now been acquired by Niantic, <laughs> uh, but also Simon Bannister, Founders Fund. So that was a really amazing opportunity to be able to go on stage with you know these leaders in AR and speak with them about the AR space. And I felt highly underqualified initially because I was only working in the AR space for about two years. Mm-hmm. Uh, sorry, two months, as opposed to VR for two to three years. Um, but it was an amazing opportunity, and thanks to that, we got a lot of publicity. But we actually, I learned the, the downfalls of over-marketing and over-publicizing. We had way more people download the alpha when we launched it than we initially expected. And because it was just an early alpha, we were just doing early need finding. We got a lot of negative user impressions, mm. which led to them not downloading the app later when we launched the beta. And because of that, we had a really hard time getting our users for our beta. Um, so that, that really caused, like it was like a high initial upward spike in users and mm-hmm. we weren't able to maintain that which obviously looks really bad in terms of metrics mm-hmm. but we learned a lot from the user testing from the user experience and from marketing at that point um so curie pets as much as it was a learning experience for ui ar and ux ar it was a huge learning experience for positioning marketing a product and getting user research and getting general. the timing right right with oh, marketing yeah. and like the versions that you have out on oh, the yeah, market definitely um I mean, the whole career path project was a big publicity thing, and it, although it was really fun to do, the timing was definitely not right on it, a lot of it. So I definitely learned a lot in terms of timing and execution, but um, I'm definitely glad I had that as a learning experience. Mm-hmm. So you have that experience, and you were like, okay, now I can either go back to school or pursue something else. What made you decide to go back to school? Sure. Um, so... Well, after CurePets, we did have two more projects that we were doing um, user testing on. Uh, we did our user research over a variety of other uh, user interface techniques, as well as different form factors and user experiences through mobile AR. And we actually developed some amazing in-house software while doing it, which we thought, you know, maybe this software could be, we could turn to a SaaS company and launch the software out to help AR developers build their own apps. Um, but we found that the AR consumer market was very small, but also like there's just very few people developing in AR. And because we haven't, we weren't able to raise a round due to Apple and Google launching a competitive software <laughs> as we were finishing up due diligence, mm. we decided that, you know, it'd be really hard to f- push through with our, with our current burn rate and remaining funds. And so we decided to close up shop um, and, you know, just call the end with Beyond One, just show our research data and finding to our investors and close off Beyond One. Mm. And so that happened in the early part of summer of this past year and so during summer what we were doing we didn't decide just to go back to school right away we were thinking about what do we do next and we cultivated a lot of insights we learned a lot about developing ar as well as we developed a good network of people in the ar space and we decided that you know a big a lot of shift there was a lot of shift in the industry of ar moving from consumer to enterprise and so we thought you know a lot of these big companies or companies in general want to learn about ar and how to use it you know, what better thing to do than for us to go in as, you know, we're, although we're very young and very early, we're definitely pioneers in the AR consumer market because there were very few developers who Mm. launched anything Mm -hmm. in that time period. So we started to form this AR consulting company uh, by the, we, I mean, uh, Shellhan and me again. Um, But instead of focusing on launching as a startup and being able to have to worry about raising funds and everything like that, we just thought, let's focus on building a good product or focus on helping our customers. And so we started a consulting firm together, which is still unnamed. We're still in the process. You know, we're, logistics comes later. Our first thing is to address the client's need and to figure out, you know, what problems are we trying to solve? Mm-hmm. So uh, we had partners with um, this educational company in uh, South Africa, actually. Um, this health firm in Mountain View, uh, Stanford GSD again, and also... Um, Mercedes actually so our biggest client was a car dealership for uh, a Mercedes Benz and a BMW car dealership which we closed at the end of the summer Um, we were basically investigating uh, the sales side and the customer happiness side of um, dealerships and we wanted to tackle that through an augmented reality product so we secured a pilot study with this these dealerships and we launched it over um, 
the quarter in which uh, my co-founder and I returned to school. Mm-hmm. And we've just been working on that ever since. So with the BMW dealership, did they reach out to you or did you reach out to them and sort of pitch how you could bring benefits to their company? Oh, no. It was a definitely a huge proactive movement on our mm-hmm. behalf to reach out to them. So basically in the end of summer, we returned to Dallas. And while in Dallas, um, I decided to um, go down this alley um, in downtown Dallas, like this car alley where all the car dealerships are. And I mm-hmm. went door to door and I interviewed or I talked to product or the the sales manager of those or general manager of those dealerships and try to get the understanding of what's their sales process like, what are the some pain points they have. And I also went to a automotive show at one of the malls and talked. We did, my co-founder and I built out this mock prototype in like a week and we interviewed like 20 different uh, random people who were at the car show and asked them questions about what their experience was like in buying a car. And so based on our findings, we thought that, you know, this AR product that we were building really served an addressable need. We pitched it to these car dealerships that I went to, I was able to get conversations with the higher management and we were able to secure the dealership with these two car dealerships in the end. So wow. it was a really big, like this was all done within this time span of about four weeks right before school started. So it was a really fast paced push, uh, but we were really glad we were able to settle the pilot study before school started. And um, we finished wrapping up the pilot study in November. We had uh, great results. We were able to help these car dealerships um, improve their sales by 20%. We were looking at car accessories, and so being able to help them out with that was really significant and great. And thanks to that data, we are able to move forward with actually onboarding more car dealership clients currently. Mm. So it all started with a very bold move um, at the beginning, you would say. Yeah, I mean, throughout the whole process, through my whole experience as a founder and entrepreneur, it's there's a lot of proactive, scrappy actions that you need to take. Um, I have this this big thing that I've learned and this quote kind of I always say is that you got to be lucky, but luck is the intersection between opportunity and preparation. We're f- surrounded by all this opportunity, but unless you're prepared to execute on it and really take advantage of these opportunities, it's just going to pass you by. Absolutely. It's bad right. luck. Yeah. But when you're lucky, it's when you're actually in the right place at the right time, but not just that. You put yourself in that place. You put yourself in this period of time and you prepared yourself to actually execute on the opportunity that comes to you. Mm. So you just have to go out there and do it. Mm. Um, yeah. That's something I said before. I started Curie Pets and even now I definitely resonate with that. So let's just say you've got you know, a VC meeting or a meeting with a car dealership. What are some of the steps you take before that meeting to, to you know, like you said, have that preparation? Sure. Um, well, there's two slightly different approaches I would take versus if it's a VC versus a car dealership. Um, I'll talk on the VC end first. Um, VCs, I mean, everyone is, both VCs and car dealers, like whoever you talk to in general, they're limited on the time, so you have to get to the point quickly. Oh, yeah. But especially with VCs, you know, they've heard thousands and thousands of pitches, both good and bad, and to make yourself stand out and really attractive to them, you really have to know what you're pitching. You have to prepare way ahead of time, understand what their portfolio is, understand your product and where you think you're going to grow. Um, especially with early stage, it doesn't really matter where you are right now as much as where you think you're going and how do you get there. How you get there meaning what is your team like, what is your advantages, what is the moat you're planning on building with your product, how are you different from competition, how can you outpace the competition, what are your strengths and weaknesses. And the weaknesses actually is a very interesting and important thing to outline. Um, something I mentioned with Amino was that you know, we're very early, we're still in the process of pivoting, we're investigating all these things, but we're doing it with a very lean, very efficient budget, and we're learning while we're doing it. So mm. our t- we took our weakness being our, you know, noviceness in the field and our inexperience, but also turned that into showing that our hockey stick growth in terms of not metrics, but our individual skill set and our abilities to execute um, by showing our you know, really high growth and pattern in terms of executing, we were able to show them that we had this opportunity that we think that we can leverage best because we're moving this quickly, this efficiently, and that's all we're doing. We're really passionate about it. Mm. And I think passion is a very understated thing. I mean, everyone who's in entrepreneurship is passionate. The difficult thing is, like, maintaining that passion. It It's easy for it to die down or go away whenever you... in whenever you like run uh, into face... a, a block or, exactly yeah. you know you face countless countless failures as an entrepreneur 
and being able to stand up and keep moving forward with the same passion to go th- overcome through all those difficulties is having that grit. Oh yeah. That's, <laughs> we know that thing. word so well. <laughs> yeah. And I feel like it's almost become like a meme in Silicon Valley. Yeah. But, like have grit, have grit. Yeah. But I mean, it's very difficult to wake up every morning when you're in charge and for you to tell your team the bad news or to tell the team to, you know, to help motivate them to work harder when you have to motivate yourself to do so too. Right. You have to be very self-reflective and in tune every day, every step of the process to think about what are you doing as the founder? How are you helping your team? What are you doing next? How do you overcome these problems? And even maintaining that relationship between you and your co-founders is mm. essential. Um, there's so many things on your mindset and it's not a nine to five job, obviously. It's not even a Monday, Friday job. It's a lifestyle. Right. Um, and if it's not a lifestyle, it's a quite, you know, it's hard to actually act seriously upon it if you're not really living, breathing, eating, thinking about it every day, all the time. Mm-hmm. Do you think that ability to do what you said, is that inborn or is that something that can be trained? I actually did a research study on that for my power class freshman year. <laughs> I was investigating the concept of entrepreneurial failure, um, which was very interesting at the time. But for me, my conclusion is that people are born with certain skill sets and abilities that they might be good at, but I don't believe those are limits to success. Things can be trained. It's it's the nurture versus nature question. I think that, you know, people start on different levels. Some might start with a high affinity and high uh, proclivity to being a really good entrepreneur mm. versus someone who's not, mm-hmm. but you can be trained over time. Mm-hmm. The question is, do you have these uh, mindsets, do you have these values that help you be an entrepreneur? And certain things are definitely harder to learn as you grow up versus being born with. Grit, for instance, mm-hmm. a strong drive and passion. Those are things that are really hard to develop as you grow older versus being born with. But right. I don't think it's impossible also. I right. just think it's certainly more challenging. Mm, for sure. Mm-hmm. Something I wanted to touch on real quick before moving to the fire round. Sure. Um, is that, you know, you started this dinner view back in high school, you mentioned, I remember, when mm-hmm. I was over at your house. and. You said that you wanted to sort of like revive it um, after coming back to campus. Um, what was your thought process behind, I'm going to start this up again? Sure. So after returning to campus, after being gone for a year, I was reflecting on, you know, what was my experience like in college itself? And also during the startup, I had a very difficult time with work-life balance. Mm-hmm. As I mentioned, yeah. you know, living, eating, thinking about the startup all the time. I was actually very unhealthy that past year. Um, what do you mean by unhealthy in terms of diet or sleep? Uh, both diet and sleep, but also socially. Mm. Uh, I mean, I love my team and I was right. always with them, but being able to socialize and have that human connection beyond the work level like, right. was really important. I feel like it's easy to lose yourself in that. For sure. And that's something I didn't want to happen. And I love tech. I love entrepreneurship and I love talking about it all the time, but mm-hmm. I wanted that to not be the only conversation I have with people. Right. And so... Uh, you know, back in high school during the senior year, as you mentioned, I had this interview club with a group of friends where we would, you know, cook amazing meals and we would have my guest over and give them an interview. And I thought that was a really fun idea. And I really, really love cooking. I've cooked all throughout college, but not on a really social level. And mm-hmm. so I thought, you know, I during my uh, my winter break in between fall and winter quarter this year, I was reflecting on, you know, I'm living off campus, and I just got back to Stanford, but I feel like I haven't networked. Not, see, networked. <laughs> That's what comes to my mind. First. No, not networked, but socialized with right. some of my friends, reconnecting, and really getting to talk with them on a deeper level beyond superficial coffee chats for lunches where you just right. catch up and talk about classes. Yeah. While those are nice, I just feel yeah. like you don't really get to connect and like talk on a deeper level with these people. And these relationships are... It's hard to have them be long-term if they're going to be so... I don't want to say superficial, but that's kind of what it is. Right. Um, it's hard to do when it was a short period of time. And so I thought, you know, why don't I start this program where I cook a meal? Um, I'll cook something more elaborate. I'll invite one or two guests over and I'll talk about something deep, like either a hypothetical situation or a, you know, deep philosophical discussion topic. Mm-hmm. And um, the idea is that I would be able to get in touch with my friends who I haven't caught up with for a long time and have a really nice long meal with them or get to meet and, um, chat with people who I haven't met with before and expand my, you know, social network. Mm -hmm. So I've now had five interviews. I'm about to have my sixth. It was an 
it's an, been an amazing experience so far. Mm -hmm. I haven't skipped any of them, surprisingly. <laughs> uh, I thought that I would have trouble, like, maintaining it, but... Yeah, because it's a lot of time commitment. I saw, like, spending time going to buy the vegetables and all the <laughs> foods and then coming to actually cook it. It takes quite a bit of time. Yeah, definitely. But I feel like if I'm investing so much into my professional uh, skill set and passions, I really should do that on a social level as well. Yeah. And I just love doing it. I, It's a lot of fun and... Honestly, I wish I could do more than once a week. Obviously, balancing that with my consulting firm and classes, it's hard yeah, to do. Yeah, it's a lot. <laughs> uh, but it is a lot of fun, and I really want to grow it. Um, and, you know, as I mentioned before, I actually do eventually want to turn that into my own podcast. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, as you know, since you were uh, my first guest in which I recorded the interview, yeah. um, I'm looking forward to expanding those to have um, not just audio recordings, but even video one day. Right. And also inviting some of my professional network over uh -huh. uh, for a meal and talking about their area of expertise and dive, yeah. do deep dive into their um, field. So that's something I'm really looking forward to with the program, but mm -hmm. super excited with that. That's awesome. Okay, I want to move to the fire round, which is okay. sort of these really quick questions that I'll fire at you, and I want you to respond sort of within like 30 seconds, just really quick, short sure. responses. Um, most memorable experience at Stanford so far? Sure. Most memorable experience at Stanford was my freshman year. Um, coming into Stanford, I had really heavy duck syndrome or imposter syndrome. I felt like I didn't belong. I was shocked that I got into Stanford, much less I was actually here. <laughs> but that sense of feeling was validated when I was able to, within the first three weeks of Stanford, I joined Stanford's Energy Club, joined the executive board, had to put together a panel where I invited three CEOs from energy companies to come over and give a talk on nuclear energy. Uh, basically, I had to put all that over, or put that together, manage it really quickly, and by the end of it, I was biking home at midnight. I had a midterm the next day, but I was so happy that I was able to put it together. I realized when I got back that I was crying on the bike ride because I was so happy that like, I felt like I finally realized where I belonged mm, because of just this passion so and drive I had. Um, that was very memorable, um, and it was like one of my high moments at Stanford. It's a very weird high moment, but also like really helped me get through tough times uh, dealing with things on campus later. Oh, for sure. Favorite class at Stanford and why? Sure. Um, favorite class is E145, Chuck Easley's Technology Entrepreneurship. I took that class on my own class. Yes, yeah. so good. Um, I took it my winter quarter freshman year, and that was the time when I was incorporating Diver EDU initially. Um, Chuck was an amazing guy. He helped connect me with my first VC. So that was my first VC pitch. And that meeting led to my next meeting, to my next meeting. So he really mm. helped me get things kickstarted in terms of fundraising. Uh, and a lot of the techniques I learned in this class on user research, prototyping, prototyping, really helped us a lot in our initial stages of Diary U. Oh, for sure. Like that was definitely one of the most impactful classes I've oh, taken. Yeah, exactly. Most impactful summer internship and why? Hmm. Well, because I've been working on startups for the past three summers, I haven't ever, ever had an internship, but I just got an internship into Microsoft for doing program management. I'm really excited for that. I really want to have this corporate experience and be able to learn about better PM uh, skills by actually being one. Mm -hmm. So really excited for that. I think I'm going to learn a lot. For people on campus who sort of have this side project and want to pursue it um, as an actual startup, what's one piece of advice you'd give those people? Sure. So I've actually helped um, one of my friends, Chris Liu, who's working on Friendship now with his friend, uh, Jack Gartland. Um, I've helped chat with a couple of startups such as his and others on really getting into it and getting passionate and starting it. I think the first question you need to ask yourself is, why are you doing it? Um, I know there's some people who are getting into entrepreneurship just to be in entrepreneurship mm -hmm. and because it's a rock star, it's a cool thing. Right. It's really difficult, and it's a really strong time investment. It's a lot in terms of both time and money and physical, like your emotional, mental state and energy. Right. So really consider that why you're getting into it. And if it's because like, you really want to solve this big problem or um, you really want to work on this product you've been passionate about and see if it can help people, go for it. If it's mm -hmm. you know just to be an entrepreneur or for the money even, really don't do it. There's other ways to get money. And if you really want to get money, like your whole, your, that, that motivation already is an influence a lot of your decisions and starting a company that will steer you in the wrong direction, mm -hmm. uh, especially from the beginning. Obviously, once you're a big profitable company, you do need to care about that. But when you're first starting, you should be focused on who are your customers? How are you helping them? What, how are you meeting their needs? And really focus before on you do anything 
try to get that product market fit. Do your user research, mm. learn those problems, iterate on your product quickly. Mm -hmm. I know it's very difficult to do with a small budget with user right. research, but it's a problem everyone has. You just have to work on your on leveraging your personal networks and try to get that really solid research in. Make sure you're not self-validating. Make sure you're actually validating with the problems that the customer needs. Mm, absolutely. And I'm going to end with one final question. So sure. what's the future of Nathan Kong? Do you think you'll drop out again? Do you think you'll go back into entrepreneurship or stay in product? What does it look for you? Sure. Um, I'm really, really passionate about entrepreneurship. Long term, I know that's where I want to be. I want to start my own company. I have endless You already ideas. have so many, right? <laughs> yeah. so the more the merrier, am I right? <laughs> yeah. Um, I really want to focus and hone in on one and do it right the next time. I'm glad I had that first experience and I certainly didn't expect it to be like a success for my first company. But uh, with that experience I've gained, I really want to build a strong foundation. So that's why I switched to CS so I can improve my technical skills. Mm. Um, I, you know, go into Microsoft so I can hone my PM skills. Um, at Microsoft, I think they're doing amazing things in the AR space. I wouldn't say it's impossible for me to end up working there full time uh, f for a long, long, long time um, because they are really leading the AR space. And if I see that I have a way that I can, you know, really help their team, then that's what I want to do. Otherwise, I just want to hone down my uh, PM experience and improve my skill set and then go back into entrepreneurship. Um, so what that timeline looks like, I'm not sure. Um, but I can say certainly I'm not going to drop out. I've I've gotten back just now. I'm going to make the use of my time that's left here. Uh, qu there's questions about whether I'll coach him or not, but I really want to go into industry. So um, I think going PM and then going back to entrepreneurship long term is the road that I see for myself. Got it. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, this was a great chat. Oh, my God. Uh, thanks so much for uh, joining me on the couch today, Nathan. Yeah, this was awesome. Um, I'm looking forward to hearing uh, more about these podcasts from you. In oh, the yeah, future. for sure. <laughs> All right. Thanks for having me. It's always a great time chatting with Nathan, and it was awesome to have him on the couch. I can't wait to see where Nathan goes with his consulting company, dinner views, and entrepreneurial spirit. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode. I hope you all enjoyed it. If you've got any feedback, suggestions, questions, or any existential thoughts, write to me at cj98 at sanford.edu. Lastly, wherever you are listening, whether that be Spotify, iTunes, etc., make sure to subscribe. Next week, we've got a great episode, and let me tell you, I could not be more excited. I'll be talking to my high school and college classmate, Evan Michelle Miller, on her journey of founding her own publishing company. Make sure to tune in. I'm Katherine Jang, and you've been listening to The Founder's Couch. See y'all next week. <laughs>